0: and hello young people. (laughs) That was uh, quite interesting. I'm very thankful to be with you around God's Word, and it's such a lovely thing to be back here in the Detroit area with all of you. Um, I love this area, and and moreover, I love the people in this area. You guys are very special to me, so it's, it's always nice to spend time around God's Word together with you. Um, It's been useful for me to look again at this topic of faith, of biblical faith, and and really to refine my thoughts since I shared this information with the brothers and sisters at Enfield in South Australia um, as a pair of Wednesday night classes about seven months ago or or so. Um, I say refine my thoughts because in a very real way, I have to admit from the outset that what I hope to share with you really aren't my thoughts. And I think that you'll soon see that these concepts and thoughts are from Scripture. They're not my thoughts, but I want them to be my thoughts. I know how I naturally think, and what I'll share with you isn't natural to me by any stretch. I have to admit that even by knowing and sharing some of these principles, which can be helpful for working on our faith daily, it's still difficult to put these things into practice, but it is worthwhile. Um... It's just something that I've been confronted with between the time of delivering these talks the first time and, and really now this time. It's just important to remember that we're learning and we're growing, and, and sometimes we do better than others. Spiritual growth is recursive. In other words, it's three steps forward and it's two steps back and three steps forward and two steps back. And, and that's how fighting the flesh is. Life is like that, brothers and sisters, for all of us, myself very much included. And so I have to admit that the thoughts that I'll share have been compiled from a range of sources in trying to answer really one rather fundamental question for myself, and that is, what am I doing daily to develop my faith in God and the Lord Jesus Christ? It's a question that is so basic that I assume that everyone in this room and in Australia had ask themselves that question at some point very early in their spiritual life. And yet, ironically, the more that I search for answers or materials like this in the Brotherhood, the less I seem to find. So you may know that I I teach at Heritage College, which is a Christadelphian school in Adelaide. And if we were there, and we're not, but if we were, this is what the learning intention would be or really what the aim would be for this, this session. It'd be pretty straightforward, we are learning to develop biblical strategies for growing our faith in God and the Lord Jesus Christ on a daily basis. And I have to admit that really this question has come from asking another one first, and that is, well, what can I do for God? What can I give God? As you know, the cattle on a thousand hills are his anyway. And if we're honest in reflecting about what it is that we can give God, we realize pretty quickly that everything that we have, God has given us in the first place. So what is it that we can give him? Well, really, the only thing that we can give God, who has created the earth and all things in it, is our faith in him. In short, my confidence, my trust. And from that trust comes a love for him that he so desires to see in his children. And so we want to, ask, we want to start the weekend together by asking a simple question. Why is the Bible putting so much importance on this topic of faith? And and how important is faith? Why is it the hinge point for every good work that follows? Well, in short, faith is the very basis of the expression of God's character in us. It's the gateway to that. So we take a look at the verse that Paul just read in Hebrews 11 at verse 6. There it says, But without faith, it is impossible to please, please God. For he that comes to God must believe that God is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So so you mean to say that if I give all my money to the poor and, and I go and work in a soup kitchen and faith in God wasn't the motivating factor that I haven't pleased God? Really, without faith, whatever that is, I cannot please God. It's impossible, is what the scripture says. For example, in Amos chapter 5 and in Acts chapter 7, we're told that God took no notice, absolutely zero notice of the Israelites' sacrifices and their offerings in the wilderness for 40 years. Amos chapter 5 and verse 25 says, Have you offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness these 40 years, O house of Israel? And in Acts chapter 7 and verse 42, it says, O ye house of Israel... Have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of 40 years in the wilderness? Hebrews chapter 4 at verse 2 hints at the reason why he didn't even take any notice, and that's because the element of faith was missing. The writer to the Hebrews says that their carcasses, which are akin to dead animals, fell in the wilderness, and they didn't enter the promised land because of unbelief. Hebrews 4 at verse 2 says, For unto us the gospel is preached as well as unto them, But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Without faith, brothers and sisters, it is impossible to please God. Later in Zechariah, God took absolutely no notice of the Jews' ritual fastings. For 70 years they did this. And so the prophet is sent in to rebuke them and to correct them, to do the fasting with humility, which we'll find is the very basis of faith. And so, as we work through this study together, what we're going to find is that if we want to increase our faith, we have to decrease our self importance. We have to be humble. That doesn't mean being downtrodden and wallowing in the mire. That doesn't mean having long faces and being miserable. It simply means that we have to see ourselves as we truly are. If Christ said, I can do nothing of my own self, why should we ever think to ourselves, right, I've got this? Without Christ, we are nothing. But through Christ, we are made to ride upon the high places of the earth. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. In fact, we are more than conquerors. We are the sons and the daughters of the living God. We are mighty ones. And how is that possible? By faith. So why does the Bible put so much importance on this concept, and and how important is it? Well, you probably know Paul's famous dissertation about love in 1 Corinthians 13. And you'll know that he ends that passage with this. He says, and now abides faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And what I want you to consider is that godly love is born out of faith. In other words, you cannot demonstrate the love of God unless you first have faith that God exists. You can't extend the love of God to others until you first perceive through faith the love that God has towards you. And so the range of what we think and know and thus what we can do is limited by what we fail to notice and appreciate. This is exactly what what Jesus taught in John chapter 5 at verse 19. He says, The son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatsoever thing he does, these also the son does likewise. It was about what the son noticed the father doing. And the point here is that, that faith precedes love. And therefore, it's clear that without faith, it's impossible to love like God loves. Oh, you can have compassion. People who don't know God, by all human definitions, love their children, for example. But the quality of the love that God is looking for in his children is one that is inspired by his love. And that's the love of 1 Corinthians 13. That kind of love never, never fails. It doesn't get tired. It's energizing. It's without limit because its source is unlimited. And if you can tap into that kind of love, you won't be weary in well-doing because the energy comes from faith in God who powers your love. Sure, we may lose the plot sometimes and need to be stirred up by way of remembrance, but the love of God is a force without limit. It won't happen without faith first. In Ephesians 2 at verse 8, this is what we read. We read, For by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. And so, four times in this verse, God reiterates to us that it is His work by grace. But the role of faith does play an important part. In other words, we cannot be saved by God's grace unless we have faith. That's the process, that's how important faith is. Without it, not only can we not please God, can we not manifest his love? But there is no, full, no salvation, full stop, period. And that's exactly what, what Paul told his son in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, at verse 14 and 15. He says, but continue thou in the things which thou hast known and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, you probably know that the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk and Hebrews 10 and, and numerous other scriptures tell us that the just shall live by faith. But, but did you know that it's by faith that we Gentiles were brought into the family of God? And how do we know this? Well, Peter spoke to the Judaizers in Jerusalem when they questioned him about the Gentiles. And he told them that God had purified the Gentiles' hearts through faith. And the evidence of this was that God gave the Gentiles the Holy Spirit, and there was no denying the miracles that were wrought in them. That's in Acts chapter 15 at verse 9. He also said to the Jews that the circumcision doesn't make you special, and it doesn't make you righteous before God. Paul would later go on to say that it was the circumcision of the heart that matters. And as we will soon learn, the heart is where faith takes root the heart. But Peter said, the only thing that avails you anything is faith working through love. That's what matters, not outward signs of religion. Now, it probably comes as no surprise that we find faith as an integral part of the atonement. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 3, and we'll start at verse 23, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. And what I want you to do is I want you to look for the concept of faith. I count seven times. And if you want, you can put a circle around the word faith or believe, which is the same concept. So faith is an integral part of the atonement. Romans 3 at verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, by whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Why? to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, God's righteousness, that he might be just and a justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Verse 27, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what? Law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God, which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? By no means. Yea, we establish the law. And this is the critical passage about the atonement. This, this is how God is reconciling the world unto himself in seven times in, in seven or eight verses, the term faith and the concept of faith comes into it. This is how we're saved, brothers and sisters. Now, now, what are the weightier matters of the law? If I was to make this a pop quiz, I wonder if you could answer that question. It's in Matthew 23, verse 23. And this is where the Lord, the Lord upbraids the religious leaders for focusing on small things like mint and anise and cumin. And they miss the importance of the weightier matters of the law. And here they are. Judgment, judgment. Mercy and faith. The Lord says, these ought ye have to done. Uh, Sorry, these these you ought to have done, and, and, and not to let leave the others undone. In the first epistle of John, what is the victory that overcomes the world? Our faith. Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, it says. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? but he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And it just goes on and on and on. Why was the Gospel of John written, for example? It tells us clearly at the end of chapter 20. John 20, verse 31 says, But these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, continuous, you might have life through his name. It simply wasn't written for our learning and our admonition, but for the development of our faith or our connection to God. Now, this is an interesting one. Paul opens and he closes the book of Romans with this phrase, the obedience of faith. And while many translators make that the obedience to the faith, which implies that this is the way, the one true faith, walk ye in it, it becomes very powerful when the article the isn't there. The diaglot and many other translations renders it the obedience of faith. Now, now why is that so interesting? Because it instructs us that our obedience is a direct function of the reality of God in our lives. Our obedience is a function of our faith. In other words, without belief, without faith, you just can't be obedience. I believe Paul is saying, I am writing this letter to you to inform you, yes, of the way to life in Jesus Christ, the faith, the one true faith. And he's saying, but I'm also writing it to you to bring you into to obedience. And how does that happen, brothers and sisters? By law? No, by faith. Later, towards the end of the book of Romans, Paul says, in some matters of conscience, your conscience has a, it has a severe impact on whether or not you sin. And if you don't act in faith, you sin. He says, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And there, there are so many other additional verses that we could add to show the importance of this, context in, or this concept in Scripture. And if you're actively listening, you're, you're probably, your minds are probably ticking over with all sorts of other ones to add to the list. But what's the point? That the topic of faith is a theme that is woven throughout the entire Bible? Well, well, clearly it is that you now agree with me and I have your attention moving forward. Well, I hope so, but that's not the point. The point is, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. That's from Proverbs 23, verse 7. It sure seems like the point and the intention of Scripture is to fundamentally change the way that we think. That by reading the Scripture daily, God's words and Christ's sayings are intended to change the way that we think and what we think about and what we dwell upon. And those things will always have an impact on our reality. The more we live and the more we learn, our minds. We figure out that our minds are generative and our minds are creative. And unless we actively choose what it is we think about, we end up living in situations we don't desire. In other words, we create our circumstances and by what it is we think about or and in, in, in what it is that we subconsciously believe or have faith in. Now, we've all experienced that very same thing. We've made some bad choices. Perhaps we didn't even realize it at the time. And we've had to live with some consequences that we wish we wouldn't have to. or We wish we were more conscious of of when we made the the moment made the decision at the moment. You see, what we have faith in, brothers and sisters, and what we actually believe, regardless of what it is we profess to believe, creates our reality. For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Advertisers know this. And so what they do is they layer things over and over and over into our subconscious mind, to get us to believe lies such as it really doesn't matter if we do what we know feels good now even though later down the track it's going to harm us and wreak havoc on our on our lives and we can't also help but but ask the question in the bible why is god angry with what are called sorcerers or magicians we know that there is no such thing as magic or sorcery in the bible we know that there's only one power in all the universe isaiah 45 tells us that concept eight times. But why is God so angry in in condemning a man like Simon the sorcerer, for example, in Acts chapter 8? Well, what he was doing is he was bewitching people with his sorceries. And all that that means is this man was meddling with the gateway to God. This man was meddling with people's beliefs. He was toying with people's beliefs. And that's serious stuff. That is not something that God lightly dismisses. And so we understand that this world is very, very capable of shaping our beliefs. And that's why we should have nothing to do with it. That's why we should guard our hearts. And that's why also Christ, in his first public speech in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, addresses the heart of the issue. And he teaches us that we have to get our thoughts right. It's where it all begins. We have to subject our thoughts to God's thoughts. And we have to seek God's direction. And, and ask for his insight and in prayer to direct our steps, and then we actually have to believe that he does direct our steps. We have to look for God's hand at work after we pray. You see, sometimes I think we—sometimes I get the impression that we, the way that we approach living the truth, is that if we can simply refresh our mind with godly principles enough, when when the challenges of life arise, all we have to do is simply pick the right principle. And we have to apply it in love, and then we've done the right thing by God. And then then the great frustration comes in when we don't seed widely enough or remember enough biblical principles to make better decisions. We we miss the mark in that we just didn't know our Bibles better, and we self-rebuke. And so to keep ourselves from falling, all we really need to do is just get down to the study desk more and develop a wider perspective. In other words, the problem is that we're just not disciplined enough. And that exhortation, the one that says you really aren't trying as hard as you could, is one that is always true. We could do more. And each of us would be fools to decry discipline, but but you try it. And if you're anything like me, you'll find that it is not about self-will. It's actually about belief. I should be better, but I'm not. And that's why I need Christ. Because I'm not who or what I want to be. I'm trying And I assume that you all are trying to keep yourselves from sinning, too. But so often what I tell myself and what I hear in exhortations and in classes is that that we need to try harder to the best of my ability. Well, let a man examine himself. But when I do, I am dismayed with my ability to lead a godly life. I'm sick with myself. and So I can't help but ask myself the question, isn't there a better way? I have little to no power to be the man that I want to be in Christ unless unless I apprehend it in faith. You see, there is a better way, and that is the way of faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who can work in me and do things that I just can't do. Surely I'm not the only one who feels frustrated by the the daily grind of fighting the flesh. And there's an irony to this, because we of all mankind should be most happy. We are supposed to be liberated, free from sin, because of the sacrifice of Christ. And sadly, we can go on for a long time without feeling the joy of being free from sin. And I know that we're still in this body and we're going to fight it. Don't get me wrong, sometimes I, I do feel that joy of feeling, feeling truly forgiven and free from sin. And that's the joy that Christ talks about in the upper room. And this usually happens for me at the breaking of bread and, and the love of Christ breaks my heart. But I want to live liberated from sin, not just in the kingdom age. I want to serve God without fear and faith now. But what happens, for so many of us anyway, is that week by week we come to the table of remembrance and we fear with a grave fear that we don't condemn ourselves by disrespecting the Lord's table. And so in very solemn self-examination we scour our mind and we reflect on every rotten thing that we've done and we're really hard on ourselves and rightfully so we should hate sin. And we walk away committed to try harder in the next week and not keep making the same mistakes. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, our willpower rides high, and we do, in fact, do better. And sometimes by Sunday afternoon, we feel ashamed yet again that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And, and we say to ourselves, what a wretched man that I am. How is it that we end up at the breaking of bread week by week with the same or similar sins? Now, I imagine I'm not the only one here that's had this sport sort of experience in living the truth. And what I want to get across in these studies is that it is not a willpower issue. It is actually a faith issue. And yet, strangely, we are not talking about fighting the good fight of faith with faith. And that's exactly what I believe Paul is talking about when he says at the beginning and the end of Romans, the obedience of faith. You see, faith in Christ has to be the way in which we become obedient. It has to be the way in which we overcome our natural desires. And so what I want to do in our time together this weekend is I want to talk about fighting the good fight of faith by faith. And so that's the aim. That's that's the learning intention. We are learning to develop strategies for increasing our faith in God and the Lord Jesus Christ on a daily basis. And, and so what you see on the screen in front of you is simply a roadmap for how we're going to do that. As you can see right there, we have a tree which is illustrative of the principle that If you get the root of the tree right, it will bear fruit. We know that Christ is the root, the root and the offspring of David. Sometimes we have to focus, sometimes what we end up doing is we focus on the the fruit of the Spirit, and we wonder why it's so hard to see it in ourselves when what we should be doing is focusing on the root, or abiding in the vine, as John 15 says. It's a simple analogy. Our root in Christ is our faith. And then above the line, you'll see, those are the roots down there. And then you see a line. And so above the line are our good works. And those are produced by faith in Christ, the works and the fruit. But sometimes, brothers and sisters, there are things that choke our faith, thorns and thistles, so to speak. Yeah, they're small and they're insidious. And sometimes we don't even know that they're there, which is why David says in Psalm 19, Lord, reveal unto me my secret faults. Now, I think it only makes sense to talk about these thorns to our faith because we can know how God generates faith in us, and we can know what we should do to cultivate our own faith, but if we have thorns choking our faith, or if we have sticking points or obstacles or roadblocks, the other bits might make all the sense in the world in theory, but they won't be received. The principle is sometimes we have to sweep the house clean before we can put something better back in. And so we will look at thorns through our faith and and ways that God generates our faith um, in our time together, Lord willing. And so eventually in our time together, what we'll do is we'll look at ways in which God works on our faith and ways in which we can increase our faith day by day until our faith is turned to sight. And finally, what we'll do together, Lord willing, when we remember the Lord Jesus Christ tomorrow morning, is we're going to see how all these concepts come together in our master. But first, we have to ask the question, what are we even talking about? What is faith? And it's, it's easy to say faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But I'm not necessarily sure that that's clear. So we'll begin with the question, what even is faith? And the most simple way I can put it, is faith is your thoughts your thoughts which have substance your faith is your connection to God and Christ your faith is your connection to what they've said what they've promised and everything that we read in scripture your faith is your belief it's your trust and to put it in a modern term or modern parlance it's it's your signal strength to God one little question is can it be literal can these things actually shape our, our daily experience? Can our faith have a literal effect on our lives? Because you you're probably remember that Scripture talks about having faith to move mountains. First Corinthians 13, verse 2, and, and for example, in Matthew 17, verse 20, the disciples were not able to heal a boy who was having these epileptic seizures. And they wanted to know why. And Jesus said unto them, it's because of your unbelief. For truly, I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, "Remove hence to yonder place," and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Faith to move mountains—is that a metaphor? It must be a metaphor. A mountain is an, is an obstacle, for example, and if you have faith that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, well, well, you will be able to overcome those obstacles that are in your path. But but can it be taken literally? And I think that it actually can, brothers and sisters, because of Scripture. Zechariah 14, verse 4, tells us that our feet shall stand with his on the Mount of Olives in that day, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half the mountain shall remove towards the north, and half shall remove to the south. And so, yes, those that live lives of faith. We'll see the literal culmination of their belief when the Lord comes to reign on earth. And we will be with him by his grace in that day. But moreover, our faith does have a profound impact on our daily experience. And so the question we have to ask next is, well, where does faith find root? Where is it generated? And Romans 6, 10 at verse 6 tells us the answer. If you turn there with me, I'm going to read about four or five verses. Romans 10 at verse 6 and we'll read down through, through verse 10. So where does faith find root? Where is it generated? The heart. Romans 10, verse 6. But the righteousness, which is of faith, speaks on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, Or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is near unto you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. Verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so where does faith find root? It's in the heart. In other words, in the inner man, in your thoughts. And now you see how this presents a problem, brothers and sisters, because we know Jeremiah chapter 17 at verse 9, where it says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? And we know it. But of all the challenges to, that limit our faith, and we're going to look at these later, fear or sin or pride or, or looking at oneself instead of looking at God, wrong beliefs that choke our faith or lack of perception and awareness, the cares of this life overwhelming us or, or not understanding our purpose and our destiny, the greatest obstacle, I believe, to growing our faith is, is not believing that God is in every detail of our lives. So what limits faith? What grows faith? The degree to which you believe this. That God is active and he is present in our lives. And that's what I mean by God being in every detail. God being in everything in the life of a believer. And yet we know these scriptures, brothers and sisters. Psalm 34, verse 7, the angel of Yahweh encamps around those that fear him and he delivers them. Isaiah 55 at verse 11, So shall my word be that when it goes out from my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. Philippians 1 at verse 6 says, Be confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that it's hard to believe from personal experience that God is in every detail of our lives, especially when there are times in the life of a disciple in which we hit rock bottom and we feel like our prayers are only going up to the ceiling and no further. It's especially difficult to believe in the midst of great sorrow and suffering. And I'm sure at one point, especially in the midst of suffering, I would have found what I'm about to say quite hard to accept, quite confronting, even offensive. But nevertheless, it is true that in the life of God's covenant people who have surrendered their will to him at baptism, he is in every aspect of our lives. Even the very hairs of our head are numbered. God is in every aspect of our lives. But how? Either by creating scenarios in which we grow, or at the very least by allowing situations to come into our life to generate and to grow faith, to bring us to receive the end of our faith, the very salvation of our souls. The more I've looked into scripture, the more I am convinced that what you believe about this idea has an enormous impact on whether your faith grows, whether it stagnates, or whether it shrinks back. And there are numerous examples of men and women in scripture who believe that God was in everything in their lives. And they are the people that you and I want to be like. And moreover, they are the people that God wants us to emulate. Why? Because that's the level of connection that God wants to have with his children. Now, it's important also to clarify from the outset what, what God is not in. God is not in sin. God has nothing to do with sin. And although he has made provision for it in the lives of his children because he knows our frame, that we are but dust, and that we will in fact sin despite our best efforts and intentions not to, let's be clear, God hates sin. The portrait of Jesus Christ on the cross Is God's view of our sin? It is worthy of death. It is not something to be winked at, and never should our liberty in Christ breed license to sin. And as we know, when we sin, we we separate ourselves from God. He hides His face from us, so to speak. The, The cherubim cover their eyes, and we are left most alone. We have disobeyed the word of God. It doesn't mean that God abandons us forever, He still works with us and reforms us to bring us back to Him. But he's not in sin. He doesn't permit it. He doesn't condone it. And although he has made provision for it, let us never forget that that provision is the blood of his only begotten son. We have to understand how God generates or creates faith. And it's critical that we spend some time considering what God thinks of us once we're baptized. You see, Everything changes when we publicly confess at our baptism that we are worthy of death, when we surrender our will to God and we make an everlasting covenant with the creator of all the world. There has been a change of status, or as Brother Thomas says, there has been a change in constitution. We are a new creation, is what Colossians says. And as someone that has admitted that there once was a way that seemed right unto me, but that way led to death, there has been a significant change. Why is it so important to realize what it is that God thinks of us? Well, sometimes, brothers and sisters, we don't see ourselves as God sees us. And seeing how special we are to God, according to his words, generates faith. Next, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to look at why that's so hard to believe, that God is involved in every detail of our life. And one of the great challenges to our faith comes in suffering. We all know that it's easy to believe that God is involved in the good things, but what shall we shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? Why is it hard to accept that God is in the great challenges of life? Well, well, fundamentally, it challenges our sense of justice. The question we all face internally is, well, why is this happening to me? In other words, I'm a pretty good guy. I go to meeting three times a week, and I care about the things of God. This isn't fair. And that's where we get derailed in thinking that we should be able to justify ourselves to God. That's a works-based mentality and one that cannot bring us to the kingdom. On an intellectual level, we know that God is the justifier of them that believe in Jesus. That's the atonement, that come what may, God is right, that Christ died to declare God's righteousness, and that God is a justifier of him which believe in Jesus. That's Romans 3, verse 26. But it's easy, brothers and sisters, to lose perspective when we're under stress. And so it's helpful to have a reminder of what it is that God says about his people. And finally, what we endeavor to do together is to look at biblical examples of lives that are transformed by the belief that God is in everything in their life. These are men and women through whom God has done the impossible by faith. We'll look at examples from Jacob's life, from Joseph, David, Elisha. We'll look in the Psalms. We'll look at the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of faith. And we're going to look specifically at the mind of faith in the upper room at the breaking of bread tomorrow morning, God willing. But before we finish this session, I have some homework to set. And what I'm challenging you to do is to let God in on every aspect of your life for the next two weeks. Put it to the test. Just try it. When you struggle with something, however small, pray about it. Pray without ceasing. How you do one thing is how you do everything. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. When something good happens to you in the next week, thank God for it. Praise his holy name, connect with him, and rejoice in his loving kindness. And when something challenging happens, well, ask for his help. I hope this doesn't sound too touchy-feely for you or too Pentecostal. I'm, I'm not looking for amens, and I hope you don't roll in the aisle. Just pray fervently with respect, and with reverence. Just, just test it out. Have faith that God is in everything and that he is bringing things into your life for the development of your faith or allowing things to take place in your life to shape and develop you and make you fit for his temple. Call upon his holy name and faith, whatever it is your lot is, for the next two weeks. Brothers and sisters, the scripture abounds with examples of why we should believe that God not only wants to be involved in all aspects of our life, but he is crafting and even allowing situations and circumstances to prepare us for the kingdom. And one objection you might have that I had when thinking along these lines is, he is God Almighty. Isn't he too busy running the universe, holding the planets in places, putting the the, uh, presidents and and dictators in place to bring about the, the battle of Armageddon, making stars? Do you seriously think that God wants me to believe that he is interested in my little troubles? In short, yes, he is. Even the very hairs of your head are numbered. And so we have to start by considering what it is that God actually thinks of us. Not what we think God thinks of us, but what the scripture says and what God thinks of us when he looks at us through the blood-covering sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to see ourselves as God sees us through the sacrifice of his Son, And Lord willing, that's where we'll begin our next session in about half an hour.